anybody there? Oh, there you go. There you are. Hey, Norm, how are you? I'm good, Jamie. How are you? I was just having trouble unmuting there for a second. Oh, no, you're just fine. Uh, I was just going to give you a heads up. If you see me kind of like looking all over the place, it's because I'm typically fiddling with those volume knobs and trying to figure out. Because, yeah, because you are <laughs> looking all over the place. Of course, that's fine. Yeah, yeah. That's great. Uh, well, hey, I appreciate your time uh, taking a little bit of your day to chat with me about theater and acting and lots of the many things that you're doing. I'm really excited yeah. to get to know more about you and um, ask you a little bit of uh, where you came from. So maybe we could start there. Sure. How does this begin for you? Uh, where Actually, let me ask you this. Where are you at right now? I'm in Toronto, Canada. Oh, okay. Wonderful. Is that uh, your home turf, or is that kind of where you where you've ended up? Uh, well, I've ended up, but I've been here a very long time. Uh, <laughs> I've been here since uh, I've been here since uh, high school, and high school for me was the '70s. Mm -hmm. But I actually was born and raised in Montreal. Oh, okay, yeah. okay. So I came, came from Quebec, and then the family moved here. My dad got transferred here, but I've been here. Toronto's been my home ever since. Oh, wonderful. May I ask you how your creative journey began? specifically uh the acting writing and and this kind of area that you've been that that i've been seeing anyway on youtube so there may be more <laughs> sure no absolutely and by the way jimmy i just want to say i think this podcast idea is fantastic and i i kind of was i was i was thrilled actually when you reached out to me because uh, when I, I you know i put something on twitter one morning i didn't really expect anything from it and uh <laughs> So no, I think this is a great uh I think oh, you've got a good idea here. I appreciate it. Podcast. Um okay, um my I, I like telling this story uh when I was a when I was a high school English and drama teacher for um like the past uh, 18 years, newly retired. Oh. Um I would repeat this story because it's so um it's unexpected and it's not traditional so i guess my feeling is i i, I did theater like in when i was a little kid uh in school uh knew that i liked it but i did not have the guts to pursue it when i got to uh university age um i remember uh graduating from high school and i went to uh, york university in toronto has a great theater program and uh, me and along with a bunch of other high school students went uh, for an information day and the head of the department uh, he, he was trying to scare us and it worked he he said to us so you want to become an actor why and there were like 20 of us in the room and he went around and forced all of us to account for it mm -hmm. i don't remember what i said i think i just repeated whatever i heard anybody else say <laughs> and he was trying to scare us at the end of the whole thing he said he said, you have to, if you're going to do this, you have to want it more than anything because somebody else is going to compete, uh, is going to want it more. Mm -hmm. And um, I, I was scared away. I just thought, I don't, I don't, I don't know if I can jump into this yet. Mm -hmm. uh, I ended up uh, in my 20s, I ended up doing a degree at the University of Toronto in English and sociology, and I got my teacher's degree. Mm -hmm. And then I started teaching uh, full time. But the thing is, Jamie, all the time I was doing theater on the side, all the time. Um, did a there was a musical theater group at the University of Toronto called New Faces at New College, and they're still my friends today. Um, and uh, then I graduated. That group actually continued with a group called uh, the Group of Several, and always doing original musicals. By the way, oh wow, um, that's awesome. And I never. No, I never gave it up, but I never, I don't think I sort of wanted to make it official. Mm. Um, and I sort of had a foot in both 
both worlds. I was teaching. My parents said to me, so you're going to get a full-time teaching job. And I didn't. I got a part-time teaching job. Uh, and anyway, then I then I went full-time, but I um, was still doing theater. By the time I got to, I was 28, and I um, had a lot of cynicism about the world of education, but I also was, by this point, I was starting to train mm. as an actor. Mm. Found a good teacher, more than one class that I wanted to take, and I was doing it. So I had this strange world of teaching full time, but then at night and then on the weekends, mm -hmm. theater was all I was doing. At 28, I quit my job. I quit my teaching job. We're talking a pensioned full time teaching career that I quit to become an actor with, and you and I know, like, what does that mean? Um, <laughs> What's what a roadmap was, look like? Yeah. <laughs> There wasn't one. And um, I was doing, uh, you know, I had an office job. And then I started into that world and kept on going with it and doing, you know, non-equity work. And then I got my, I got my equity status. And then I wrote a play based on, which we'll probably talk about, mm -hmm. um, a play based on my teaching experience called Put Up Your Hand, which I had a lot of success with it. Um, got a professional production of that show. And um, I was doing TV, like it was the whole thing was starting to take off. And that went on for around about five years, so into my early 30s. And um, so I was doing it, and I had a lot of enthusiasm, but not a lot of confidence. Mm. And suddenly, right, like right after the play sort of uh, got out there and everything, I, I sort of crashed and burned. I, I had this weird, weird uh, sensation of, I don't know if I'm talented enough to build my whole life around this. Mm -hmm. And I've actually, we'll probably get to this too. I've actually just been creating a sort of a one man piece about, um, about being in the theater. And, uh, but I had to leave it for a time. And uh, we're talking like, I mean, it was like a, it was almost like a breakdown. I had to sort of go away from it. Um, that's how I felt. Yeah. And, and yet, I never did fully. I was still writing, et cetera. I just never made it official, you know, and then I came back to it. Mm. And, and, you know, it's, it's sort of a, a very difficult impulse to try to negate. Um, I, I very much liken it to, you know, I, I call it my delusion, right? Where you have the <laughs> rational side of you and then you have this, this beautiful delusion that just kind of keeps you, that's always at bay, you know, the, but you can still see it in, in the periphery of your eye and, and, it calls you, it doesn't leave you alone, but you have to find a way to kind of manage it or balance it in a way that won't destroy you. Because I, I do agree with you that there are some moments in your life where you have to know a hundred percent whether you're, you're diving in fully. And, and there's been a lot of those. And I myself have felt like, I, I don't think I'm going to go to those links or I don't feel like I'm ready to dive off, you know, into that. So if I may ask when you were teaching or when you had that position and you you had a fairly stable situation what was the thing that sent you over that said i'm going to do this now what was what was that thinking like in the moment great that's a great question the moment was um it was a combination of um so quite a bit of despite the fact that i was enjoying the teaching um I, at the time that this happened, I was actually teaching at a, at a college. I was teaching at Humber College in Toronto, teaching English and sociology. And um, 
without going into it, there were some, uh, I was having some negative experiences as a teacher, not mm. so much with the students. It was just a sort of a crisis of, uh, you know, do I really believe in this? And at the mm. same time, I was taking acting lessons at night right. and on the weekends. And it was with a really gifted teacher. And I was just getting so much out of it. And what I did was, was I thought, this is calling to me, um, but let's be smart. So what I did was I asked for a leave of absence. Mm. And I asked the college and I said, can you just give me a leave of absence? And to make, to make it real, I said it can be unpaid. I asked for an unpaid leave so I would be forced to take the office job. You know, all my actor friends said, you're going to be a waiter. You're either going to be a waiter or you're, if you've got the skills, work in offices. We recommend if you've got the skills, take the office job. And I had those skills, so I did. Yeah, <laughs> and I, I'm going to do that. I'm going to do that for a year, and the college said in a year we'll talk. Mm. So that's what I did, and during that year I dove into it with meaning, continuing classes, auditioning. I think I was doing some writing, but it was mostly the world of, of acting. And at the end of that year, I I had the coffee with my uh, chairman of the college, and he said, "So, what are you going to do?" And I said, "I'm not coming back." And I just made the decision that and big and it was the balance of the theater was like it was really calling to me and I felt I hadn't given it a shot mm -hmm. up until this point not really yeah. and this negative experience I was having teaching which would end up <laughs> end up in that play a couple of years later anyway uh, so that <laughs> was a confluence of negative this is not going well I'm not really enjoying it this I don't know enough about yet yet I let's try it and discovered I could handle it mm. and, and wanted to do it. So that's yeah. kind of what it was. Yeah. Yeah. And that's a, that's a really powerful moment, I think, because I, I feel that a lot of us, as we're going through our education, maybe we don't get the firsthand advice about these things. We we're given sort of like a fairly rosy picture of the type of commitment that is necessary for that leap. And so I think it's great that you're, you're able to kind of share that with, with, you know, honesty about it, because I think that we, you know, I certainly could have used that, you know, when I was first diving into it. But when you began doing the writing in your career, was that something that you started fairly early on? Was that something that you dabbled in earlier, like like acting or, or that interest? Or did that come later? I think I'm lucky in that it was also uh, an early urge. And I was like, you know, uh, English was my favorite subject. Uh in school. Um, so I was a, just a voracious reader. Um, had a, I mean, up until that point, I think I had like, you know, I had like a short story published in like a, a university quarterly, I mean, little bits of things, you know. Um, but I knew that I liked it, and also wanted to go further with it. And at the time that how I came to do the play uh, was, so I was acting by this point, I'd sort of said goodbye to teaching mm -hmm. and i knew i had an idea for a show and the idea was uh, i was very inspired by two two sort of role models in the theater back then for me as writers and performers were uh spalding gray mm -hmm. and eric bogosian both of whom were doing these monologue shows mm -hmm. uh, spalding gray did a ton of them you probably know um you can see him in the movies with swimming to cambodia eric bogosian uh, uh drinking in america just mm -hmm. terrific writing and these were all monologue driven and I thought I could do it. And I, in a minute, I knew I had about seven or eight characters um, mm. that 
from the world of education. And I just started honing them. And I think it was around 1990. And I, I wrote the thing intensely, like over a period of months. It was not, didn't take me that long. Mm. And there was around where I lived in Toronto, there was this cafe that would have an open mic night and you could bring anything you liked. So I would bring one monologue each week mm. <laughs> and I would test it out. And um, I'll never forget going <laughs> to this open mic night and this, I remember they got used to me showing up and there was one that I showed up and there were these poets <laughs> who came each week and they were like this, these drinking buddies at the back of the bar. And I got up one night and I introduced one of my precious my very earnest little monologues and one of them said and it doesn't have to make sense <laughs> and I, I didn't know what to do with that and i thought well if they, does that mean they like it or they don't like it anyway it didn't stop me it didn't deter mm. me and i kept going back and the thing is those open mic nights i got to hone that script pretty well before i finally went to a um i'd been in a, a play and i knew the director and i said used to be a teacher. Can you look at these? Do you think this is a show? And she said, yeah, I think it is. And then we, that's when we got a group together and then it became a fringe show and it went on from there. Mm. And that was all happening while I was still acting, but it was, it was the most, the most sort of, it was a good, again, a good confluence of background experience, backstory, and here's an opportunity. And I, and the thing that helped me, Jamie, was I knew the form. I knew it was going to be a monologue driven play. Mm. And when we first read it, it was these seven or eight monologues, one after the other. And then, and yet when we decided to do it as a fringe show, we hired the seven or eight actors and we got, we had a read through and the director said to me, it doesn't work. Ah. And I said, and I said, I know, why is that? <laughs> I, said, I said, I don't get it. I mean, I, I just didn't get it. Mm. So what we ended up doing was, which was a writing piece, uh, process was we took the eight monologues and we interconnected them. So a character came on stage and started, mm -hmm. but they didn't finish their monologue because they were interrupted by another character oh. who had a topic, who had a topic that was kind of overlapping with theirs. And they came on, but they didn't finish either. Mm -hmm. And eventually it became a play of these seven or eight interconnected monologues. And it worked beautifully. Oh, goodness. So was this something that that theoretically could be performed as as a one person show or was this ultimately designed for for a variety of people? Um, it started off as a one man show in my mind it was going to be for me, which I would right. eventually do, but not for another decade. Oh, wow. Um, the the one we did at the Fringe, um, the Summer Works Festival in uh, 91 um, was the seven or eight actors and it worked beautifully. And I almost think it may be the best version of the play on stage because mm. it's a theatrical uh, vehicle. It's just, it's, it works extremely well. Yeah. The funny thing is, is when I, so then I entered it in a competition um, and it won. And that's where they said, that's where it would be an equity. This would be like the first professional production. And that's where they said, and I got to do this. I actually got to mention this in my my interview with Edward Albee, which maybe we'll get to, mm -hmm. um, because I, I got to do the play, but he said, the theater said to me, yeah, we really like the characters, but we don't know what it's about. <laughs> and I said, well, it's about school. And they said, yeah, but what are you saying? Mm -hmm. He said, there's no plot. And there wasn't, it was not a plot driven piece. Mm -hmm. It was meant to be sort of these images of 
school from teachers, from from parents, from kids, from you, you name it. Right, right. And the theater said to me, they said, okay, uh, we, we're doing a one-act festival. We like your play. We want you, we want it to be in it. We've already hired the actors. Here's a dose of here's a dose Ooh. of reality for your listeners. Yeah. We've yeah. already hired the three actors, two, two men, one woman. And um, your play has to be 40 minutes and it has to be plot driven. <laughs> because because we can't we cannot tell what it's about. Uh, so because I was so by this point I had that craving, you know. Yeah. And let's hey, here's a professional theater saying we will do the play. But you got a so problem said, solve, right? You you gotta <laughs> So I said, okay. <laughs> and I got hired as a playwright. And the good the good news about that is A, I was able to do the rewrites, and B, it worked. Mm. And that is the version. So put up your hand and exists in three versions. Huh. Interconnected monologues, separate monologues, and this plot-driven version. And the plot-driven version is the one that community theater groups and school groups tend to do because it's the most accessible. Mm. Well, that's that's kind of phenomenal because you're you're proving the the malleability of your craft too. You know, it's it's almost like you're obviously always selling yourself in in that regard like hey i'm willing and open to collaborate as long as we can get it done but what was that difficult initially did you feel like you guys are twisting my arm here like i i'm really not interested in in doing this um i think my honest reaction was um i was so excited that the play i would get to do it mm. and i was more i never got into into the mindset of like do they have the right to even ask me to do that uh, yeah, yeah. Um, and, I'll, and I'll tell you what, what Everett Albee said to me um, about it. Um, but at the time, I was just, I just wanted it so badly. And I was terrified I wouldn't be able to do it. Like I wouldn't have the skill. Mm. But I did. Uh, I, I was in rehearsals and they said, go home and fix this, this, and this. And it was very real. It was like, we have rehearsal tomorrow, go home and fix it. And I did. And I did. I, and I mean, you have to be able to. In terms of collaboration, you better be open to that. Right. And our, my, my director was great, and she was, um, like she was like she was warm, and it was it was a wonderful collaboration. Oh, it was good. Never like, no, you know you're a jerk. You can't. This is you know I can't. Uh, the actors weren't complaining. They they just said it doesn't. Can you fix this? Uh huh. And I did. Can, what Edward Albee said to me was yeah. when I got to interview him was he said. Um, I told him about this one professional experience I had with the theater. And he said, was that a good experience? And then I told him that story. And he said, you should never let theaters tell you what to do. Mm. And he did say, don't forget, the, they have jobs because of your play. Mm. Because of you. He right. said, never, never forget that. And I thought, okay, that's and right. I said, well, I, I didn't know that at the time. And he said to me, well, now you do. <laughs> so can now you, you know. Yeah. Can, can you set the stage a little bit for how the, the Edward Albee conversation came to, to be? Sure. Sure. Um, so this is 2002. And I am, in my life, I am transitioning. This has nothing to do with it. But I was transitioning from this. Uh, I'd been in financial services and I, and the company I was with got bought out. Mm. It was like something out of a movie. It was like a hostile takeover. And uh, I walked into the office one day, it was a mutual fund company. And they said, um, you no longer work for the company that you used to. And they fired a whole bunch of people. 
Um, they looked at me and they said, we need you for six months uh, because of what I did. And during those six months, Jamie, that is when, by this point, I'm in my 40s. And by that point, all the cynicism that I'd had around teaching was gone. Mm. And everybody I knew said to me, they finally felt comfortable to say, Norm, all you talk about is plays you've seen, movies, books you've read, like you should be an English teacher. What are you doing? <laughs> what, are you, what are you doing on you know, the financial service? And I realized they were right. Mm -hmm. And then I could continue writing. And I did. And that's how I got back to teaching. So that year, a guy in the mutual fund company, a colleague of mine said to me, um, they're starting a new magazine in the gay community, in the queer community. And, and I was doing book reviews for what was called the Financial Post then, now the National Post. And he said, you want to do book reviews? And I said, sure. Mm. I knew Edward Albee was coming to Toronto for the Penn Conference. Mm. He was the keynote speaker. And I, I just saw the opportunity and I said, listen, I said, I told him, I said, Albee's coming to town to do that. I said, if you can set up an interview, I can do the interview. And this guy was, he was so young and he looks at me and he goes, who's Edward Albee? And I said, I, I said, tell you, tell your publisher. So the next day he comes back and he goes, my publisher nearly fell off her chair and she says she'll set it up. And they did. And Jamie, then in the case of be careful what you wish for, because suddenly I was actually going to interview the playwright of Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf. <sighs> and I did. And that's how that, and that's how that, that's how the interview got set up. But I, I just finished, they just that year, they published, uh, Mel Gusso wrote a biography of Albie. It's really, really good. Mm. Oh, the, the title escapes me now. But anyway, um, a, I think it was called A Singular Journey. Singular um, Journey. Okay. Yeah, you got to do some homework. So I, I appreciate it. <laughs> uh, Edward Albee's Singular Journey, I think is what it's called. Anyway, terrific biography of him. So I read it within an inch of its life or my life uh, to, to prepare, yeah. to prepare. And, and then I, and then I had an hour alone with Mr. Albee in a holiday in, yeah, in Toronto. And it went great. It was just terrific. Oh, goodness. Just got, I just got all this writing advice and that's, and that is, so I've got this one man show that I'm kind of uh, devising right now, which is basically, I call it one play, playwright to another. And it's based on the experience of interviewing him. And then two years later, I got to take a play to a workshop he ran here in Toronto. Oh, wonderful. And those two sort of bookmarks frame the play, but it's also about my journey into and out of the theater and then back again. Oh, yeah. that's, that's beautiful. So, you know, it, it seems like we, we have to look at the situations in our lives that, that just sort of naturally create story, right? So ha has it always been easy for you to look at your situation and say, this is something that we can use for a narrative? Like this is something as it's happening now, or is this something that you, you have to maybe look back on and say, this was a thing that had a beginning, middle and end, or this was the beginning of something. I usually get ideas for beginnings. Uh, that's a good observation. I don't know that I'm always hyper aware of this is happening. Like this is a play, this thing that's happening, this is a play. Mm. Uh, but um, things, you know, things in your life, they stick with you. And uh, so, for example, something that I did turn into a little 10 minute play um, was at the time of my sort of crisis about leaving the theater. And this was so this was an actual conversation. Um, I never forgot it. I was I'm acting and I went to a commercial audition and there was this guy who was always at the same auditions because I guess we were the same physical type, mm. you know, 
we weren't <laughs> friends. We were not friends. We, it was, it was, he was competition. Yeah. In fact, I don't even remember his name now. Like it's just, you know, maybe it's a good thing. Yeah. <laughs> so anyway, uh, we left. So we both ended up at this audition. And one day, one of these commercial auditions, uh, we both left at the same time. And for some reason, I don't know who suggested it, said, do you want to go for coffee? And I said, sure. And we, we did. Um, and I mistook this guy to be like, you know, a, a kindred spirit, you know, mm. in the theater. And I, so I let my guard down. And I, this was around that time when I was thinking of leaving. I was really wrestling and struggling with it. So at a given point in the conversation, I said to him, you know, I'm, I'm thinking of leaving the business. And without missing a beat, he said to me, oh, good, there's more for the rest of us. Oh, oh man. And he did, he did not hear, <laughs> talk about the opposite of your spirit of collaboration. Right, know? right. He, he, that was a shark. I looked at him, yeah. I looked at him and I thought, the ego and he had no awareness like he mm -hmm. for him it was just information he, there was no guilt there was no like what did i just say yeah for him it was just informational but i never forgot it and i ended up writing this little play uh, two, uh called two-hander which was basically about actors and egos oh lovely that but is that, lovely that's that. a good example of like a moment <laughs> that just i never forgot and i thought i am going to use that and i have <laughs> So, um, just to that, oh, that's incredible. I, I love that. I'm going to check that out in the new play exchange. Cause I saw that you had that one on there. I'm going to see if I can yeah. check that one out. I'd love to, yeah. Read, read up on some of those. Looking back on what you initially studied, which you mentioned was English and sociology. Is that something that you felt was a good introduction to, to the way you view the world? Or is that something that you use as, as part of your writing toolkit? I would say. I would say the English part of it is, I mean, I'm born and I'll tell you right now, I'm a, I mean, I'm a born and bred English and drama teacher. Like it's like, I love writing and I love the theater, but I'd say my first, I'd be perfectly honest to say my first gift is a teacher of those top of those subjects. Mm. Um, and I loved it. Like I, the last, I just retired and I just, but I really enjoyed it. And, I, mm -hmm. and it was where I was meant to be. That's for sure. Mm. The sociology piece was, um, <laughs> I love it. it's so easy, Jamie, to be honest, like years later, <laughs> I have no, like, I don't care anymore. You know, um, no, that's a, I love that. When you get older, you get older, you can just let all this stuff go. So the reality <laughs> is when I applied to university, I applied to get my degree in psychology. And the, that year you take psych 101 and psych 101 is one of those courses a thousand people enrolled and i'll never forget going to i think it was i don't know which convocation hall at uft all these students and the prof came out and said look to your left look to your right those people will not be here in six months and i thought oh come on like and and of course i thought well i'm not going to be one of those people because i'm not a quitter <laughs> so three to four months three to four months into the course the way that course worked was you had multiple choice quizzes on whatever the topic was, abnormal psych or whatever mm -hmm. it was. And I was not doing well. As a matter of fact, I was failing the quizzes mm -hmm. and uh, there are multiple choice quizzes. So I think I, I didn't know what to do. I think I just noticed it. And I went to the psych department and I went knocked on some TA's door and I said, um, yeah, I just, you know, any, I, do you have any advice? Um, you know, I'm not doing so well in these quizzes and uh, I'm studying and I'm, you know, what, what do you think? 
And the guy looked at my results and he said, huh. And he said, um, I'll tell you right now, he said, you better start getting A's on all those quizzes or you should drop the course. And I said, drop the course? Like it never occurred to me. And he said, yes. And I said, why? And he said, because if you have an F on your transcript, you will never get into grad school for anything. And he said, if you have an F on your transcript, it's there for life. Hmm. And that was such a good real life. I did not know that. Yeah. I didn't. And so I, what I did was, and he said, by the way, he said the, the date to drop the course without penalty is X date. Don't forget it. Jamie, I failed three more quizzes and I dropped the course Ooh. and I went home and I went home and I said, like my parents sort of said, now what are you going to do? <laughs> so I switched to sociology. Ah, there we go. Ah, there it is. Okay. <laughs> or connected. I would not yeah. call it necessarily, um, the life vision, but the English is. Yeah. Sure. yeah. Well, it's, it's, it's good to know. Be, yeah. Yeah. Um, are there some things that you think are tried and true in terms of your writing approach? And what are some things that you know kind of certifiably work for you as you're preparing a piece that makes sense to you now? Oh, uh, that's good. Uh, let's see. I'm very much thinking of, um, I'm doing the stage adaptation right now of um, Ann Tyler's Dinner at the Homesick Restaurant. And um, well, that, but also I'm thinking original pieces. One thing that works is, is whatever is a moment, like it, does, it could be anything, it could be an image, it could be dialogue. Um, like that guy, that actor saying to me, oh good, there's more for the rest of us. Like I wrote that down. Yeah, yeah. So it could be anything, but it's very often. So getting down initial moments and not knowing, I don't know what that is. Is that the end of the play? Is that the beginning of the play? Mm -hmm. um, I mean, I wrote this, this, the piece that I worked on uh, in the workshop with, with Albie was called The Goodbye Play. And it was very much a play about grief. Mm -hmm. And um, he said to me uh, this wonderful, incredible advice uh, after we read the script, which was not working. Mm -hmm. And he said, um, that's a really wonderful monologue. If you put it at the beginning, you might have something. Mm -hmm. Sorry, if you put it at the end. Yeah. And I... So, so structure, I don't, well, I guess to get back to your question, I don't worry about structure at the beginning. I just jot down the moments mm -hmm. and go, and then you start to go, what is all that? I'll give you another piece of advice from, from Albie. He said, you can write too early, hmm. which means you don't have to start writing the play because you got an idea. You can just let it ruminate and kind of incubate. And that could be a long time. That mm -hmm. could be. When I was teaching full time, that would that could be years because it's too too exhausted from marking and everything else. Oh I'm yeah, doing. yeah. I would wait for the summertime to go. Now, can I finally get to that idea? Mm. But right. that definitely is a piece of just whatever the thing is, get it down and don't worry about whether it logically makes sense. Don't judge it. it just yet. Don't assess just yet. Not yet. Capture. Not yet. Yeah. It, now, I wanted to talk to you about the the goodbye play because I did uh, watch the monologues that that you um, that you had on your YouTube, and I I have to say I love love that monologue with Elmo that that piece of writing where you are able to just sort of carry that line right between between this lovely levity and this this really devastating moment. I I I'm really taken by that that bit of of humor in in a situation that is so devastating 
in particular the the line with with Elmo, uh, just sort of how you you found those two elements fitting together. So I should say briefly for your listeners. Uh, so the goodbye play came out of two experiences. Um, I had broken off a very close friendship, uh, like my kindred spirit friendship that I, for all, all kinds of good reasons, I had to end it. And uh, it was very hard to do. And I, the previous year, my father had died. And I was amazed that the physical sensation of loss for the breakup of the friendship and the, my father's death was the same. And that, it, I was amazed. And that you know, stayed with me and that incubated to become a play that took a couple of years for that to go, you know, is this something? And it never went away. The monologue um, was based on the the experience that he talks about, you know, looking at at this person who's passed away in the casket. And that's that is very much me at at my father's funeral. That that experience was my experience. That anecdote about putting a treasured doll whose battery starts to work again inside the casket. I actually, that was an anecdote that I heard somebody told me <laughs> around the time. And this is actually key for the timing of writing, right? I'm working on the play, but, but just kind of in the background. And then I hear this anecdote and somebody told me the story. So it happened somewhere, but it didn't, it just, I heard it. And I thought that is great. And, and it's a wonderful it works in the monologue because monologue is about grief and it needs that. It needs something that is so, so opposite and yet you buy it. You believe that there could be this incredibly funny moment in the midst of death. Um, I think that's why it works, but it came from purely an anecdote that I knew that the monologue would need something like that to round it out. Otherwise it's just, the the earnestness of of grief which can be hard to take you know right right well i congratulate you on that one because uh, i was really moved just watching you perform that um and you you got the chops man i i gotta say you you have the acting chops because i think obviously it's one thing to to have it down on paper and have this beautiful mm -hmm. character laid out on the page but the way that you were able to to give us that three-dimensional human being in the space and I mean, I'm, I'm a firm believer in digital theater. I think it works, but you know, I'm sure it would have been amazing to see you in person do that. Thank you. Coming back to the academic world that you inhabited for a while, you know, um, how much <laughs> do you think you're, you have to cleanse yourself of, of bitterness or jadedness from being in that system? Did you ever feel uh, restricted. Did you ever feel like at academia got in the way of your teaching? Uh, well, I'd say, okay. So one one thing I'll reiterate is uh, the 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 cynicism that I felt in my twenties, um, and then like was like it just went away from me. And by the you know twenty years later, um, the other thing was the the cynicism was or the negativity in my twenties was also based on my my incredible inexperience, you know, was a new teacher. And, um, and also, I think there's something that something that can happen to you when you like when you're younger, and you first start working is, we all, you know, I had a very idealistic view of what would be the, the perfect teacher and the perfect, you know, mm. and when it wasn't perfect, I got very, I got very down on myself. By the time I went back to teaching later, it was like, you know, I realized you, know, you don't have to be perfect. Mm. You don't have to be as a matter of fact, I was perfect. 
I was I was good enough to do that. By so in terms of being, you know, the English drama guy who did the school play and everything, um, in the the new job I had in, in um, uh, twenty years later, um, you're restricted only in the sense that you know you're very accountable as a teacher to you're accountable to the students, you're accountable to their parents. Um, whatever you're going to say, and especially, especially now, I mean, uh, there's a, there's a climate there of, let's just say you have to be, um, careful about how you're going to phrase things. So would it affect what I did? Sure it would. Um, I had to be careful. Um, uh, and yet at the same time I realized, but I've got all this experience, um, and I know they would love to hear about it. And, uh, I mean, half the stories I've just told you about, like the creation of Put Up Your Hand, I was, uh, I, I've had my, I've had my, my school, I had my, my classes do it. I would tell them the reality of, guess how this really went. Um, uh, the other thing I would t tell them is, where do you think that character came from? Uh, these monologues that I created, and it was great fun to hear these teenagers talk about, oh, I think it was this kind of a person I'd say, oh, really? It's because it's based on three people. And then I would tell them. Um, but it's just a reality of the education system. Um, I tried not to let that, I guess, Jamie, it got me down in my 20s, but not in my 40s. I knew how to handle it. Right, right. It seems like you lived through a very drastic change in the teaching world. I mean, just going back oh, yeah. to when I was a student to now in this day and age, you know, maybe like 15, 20 years, it's, it's been a very, very vast change. Um, yeah. But do you recall any students that, that maybe taught you something that left an impression on you on the way that they, they saw things or maybe an anecdote of something that made a difference for you? Um, well, one student that um, I ended up putting him in, put up your hand. Um, um, so this came from, so I was teaching what was called English upgrading at Humber College in, the 20, in, my, in my 20s. And English upgrading was, it was, uh, there was no semester to it. It was basically constant intake. And mm -hmm. the way it worked was you apply to Humber College for a given program, but you have to write an English entrance test. Mm -hmm. And many students failed. And if they did, they'd say, yeah, you're welcome to come to the program once you take and pass English upgrading. Oh. And the pass, the pass was up to me. Oh, wow. And so I'm teaching adults, many of them older than me, because I'm at this point, I'm like, I don't know, 26, 27. And I'll never forget. So this character I created was based on, I think, three different students. So one's, did they make an impression on me in a very big way? One guy, he was Polish. He was about 40. I don't remember what he was going to take. I think it was like, you know, auto mechanics or something. And, but his writing was lousy. And um, so I, I helped him for months. And um, I remember going on vacation and I was going to go on vacation and he wrote a final test for me. And he, I said to him, look, I said, I think you need a bit more practice. And the look he gave me, it was murderous. He was like, and I realized what it was. It was like, I am, a, you know, I am approaching middle age. I've come over here to start a new life and you are stopping me mm -hmm. from starting it. Mm -hmm. And I went on vacation that March. I was in Florida and I was so guilt-ridden. I phoned to the college and I said, you know that student? Pass him. And they said, well, we have, we have standards. We have standards. And I said, pass him. He, I didn't want to, I didn't, I felt I was stopping him from starting his life. Uh -huh. This is the, this is the cynicism I was 
telling about. Uh, so I took that guy and mixed it with another guy. There's a guy who would show up every day and he was really cool and charismatic. And I don't know how old he was. He was like 19. And he always had a smart alecky kind of uh, remark for me. <laughs> and, I, um, and he didn't work very hard and everything. And I thought, and one day he comes up to me and he goes, can I get a reference from you? A reference letter. And I said, well, maybe. And then I found out more about him. He was on probation. He was living at the at, the, at a detention center, and he was allowed out each day to take this course. And then at night, he would go back to, to jail. And wow. I, didn't, I didn't know that until well into the course. And I wondered, and it made me think, what did you do? What, like, what, who was I dealing with? Mm. So I, uh, but he was so, he had such a great sort of personality. Yeah. And when he asked me the reference letter, I said, I can write your reference letter. I said, but don't ask me to lie. <laughs> I, said, I, I said, I can write about who you are and then I can recommend you. And he said, oh, that's cool, Norm, that's great, that's great. Um, so that coolness combined with this other guy, um and then there's a third this is the last one because this is the third guy in the same class so this guy comes in every day and he was he, he was he was his own person he was very much he was very um naive and and but very very happy all the time mm. and i said to him i said look you need more practice writing i said why don't you maybe like write some uh maybe you could read a book and then write a book review and then i can look at it with you so one day he comes in and and I this was my mindset. It was like, you know, I am the I am the great wise teacher and I'm gonna <laughs> help these guys. Remember, these are adults with lived experience. And this guy, I said, you know, do you can I recommend a book to you? You know, and I was thinking of really easy to read things, you know. I don't think graphic novels existed yet by the 80s. I can't remember, but it was <laughs> I was recommending comic books and things like this. And he comes in one day and he goes, no, no, I'm, I'm reading a book. He said, maybe I can do it on this. And I said, what's, I didn't ask him what the book was. I said, what's it about? And so I put this in the monologue and he goes, well, it's about this, uh, this, king, this king, only he's like, he's a, he's a lousy one. And he does one thing and another. And he goes through this story and I listen to him and I go, are, are you reading Richard the <laughs> second? And he goes, yeah, yeah, that's it, Richard II. Yeah, and I said, by William Shakespeare. Yeah, yeah, that's it. And I said, you're reading the play Richard II. And it wasn't Cole's notes. He had, he had gone to a garage sale, mm. picked up a paperback because it looked interesting. It was huh. taking him ages to read like the little translations at the bottom of the page. Yeah, yeah. He genuinely read it and uh -huh. genuinely, and he genuinely got it. And my prejudice came through thinking, so these three people showed me all kinds of stuff mm. and the monologue is basically this one person is all those three people getting oh. back at this stupid upgrading teacher <laughs> but, well, no, but well, yeah well-meaning well -meaning. yeah yeah oh man that is fascinating so uh just to kind of come back to the theater real quick sure what are some things that you've taken away from your teaching life that you can apply to your theater life um well, one thing I'll say is um, the first thing that comes to mind is uh, organiza organization. Um, it's like, I think it's a fallacy and you know this, it's a fallacy that if you're artistic, then you're basically a flake. And of the best, some of the best collaborators I know are pretty good business people too. 
um, you can be you can be smart about it. You can be, and and there's a time for that creativity, and then there's a time to be okay, being organized, looking at deadlines, being aware of deadlines, um, and I guess that spirit of collaboration and being. Uh, I mean, one thing I, I think I take away from from teaching is you've got to develop a sensitivity to as a teacher, you've got to be sensitive sensitive to the different kinds of learners. Mm -hmm. um, and, um, and, you know, be patient with uh, the different approaches, uh, and be flexible when you can encounter those different personalities. Um, the flexibility is useful as well. I'd say that's, that is some of it for mm -hmm. sure. I appreciate that. I want to ask you a couple more questions just to be respectful of your time, of course, in terms of the things that really influenced you, the works that really made an impact on you as you've developed your, your point of view, what were some things that just kind of blew you away? Uh, it doesn't have to be theater necessarily, but works of art that made a big difference in your life. Oh, sure. Um, I would say I have three favorite writers. Um, so one is uh, Ann Tyler. Um, I am adapting her novel, Dinner at the Homesick Restaurant. Um, she wrote it in 1982. I just got the like the rights to do it for a Canadian stage adaptation. Um, and um, sure, her writing was just, it's one of those things I think I fell in love with, with, not through the written word. I didn't fall in love with her. I fell in love with the written word. Um, and novel after novel, I mean, if there's something about her writing, it just it just takes me. And to give you some idea of the, I'm not the only one who's influenced by her. Um, uh, there's the writer, the British writer, Nick Hornby, who wrote um, mm -hmm. High Fidelity and Another Boy. Yeah. And he once said, I think at the beginning of his career, um, he just wanted to write a book as good as Dinner at the Homesick Restaurant. Um, just anyway, her influence. Uh, another one is um, Albie, for sure. Um, and with Albie, it's it's more of um, like, oh God, the zoo story is just like, mm -hmm. where did that come from? Yeah. <laughs> oh, my God. It's like. It it still reads. It's so fresh. It is still mm -hmm. fresh. Like, and I would I would do it with kids in you know, in my high school drama class. Despite the fact that it's basically an assisted suicide, that is what that play is, uh, a violent assisted suicide. Um, and yet I would I would tell them the history of it, and just and they. I remember a, a kid is coming up to me and saying, "Why don't Why don't they write more plays like this?" And I said, "It's talent. What can I say?" So I'll be sure. Um, and then a third writer is the Canadian short story writer, Nobel Prize winning author, Alice Munro. Mm. Um, just uh, her, her viewpoint and her phrasing. I mean, it's just um, that, that, that experience where you read a, a book and you just like, you have to put it, you have to put the book down to kind of, kind of go, what was that? And then go back <laughs> and reread it. So those are three. Those are three mm. authors really uh, influenced me for sure. Oh, I love that. Appreciate that because I selfishly ask as many people as possible, what, what really gave you that spark? Because you see yeah. something that is that maybe later on in life, it, it doesn't really hold the same light perhaps, but there are some works that just, you, you look and you're, they're almost like a North star. You're, you're constantly kind of like, this is something that, that uh, just completely a play that I mentioned, and when I say the title, it's going to just sound so cheesy and um, cliche, but I don't care because <laughs> I was because of when I saw it. So in 1976, I was in how old was I in 76? So I was I don't know 16. 
and probably the perfect age to see this. I got to mention, like when I grew up in Montreal, there was no English speaking theater, not in a big way. Mm. So I was not exposed to live theater, except for like going to see the Nutcracker or something at Christmas time. We came to Toronto and my parents would, would see like road tours of, you know, Broadway shows coming through. And I would go with them and I was impressed seeing because there were always like these name stars. I remember seeing Maggie Smith in Private Lives and it was fantastic. Um, but theater, again, cynicism, you know, like, you know, young, young, young person uh, arrogance. I would sit in a theater, Jamie, I would honestly think to myself, well, in a movie, that set looks so fake in a movie. It would look, it would look they wouldn't have to do that. They would just be in a jungle. They would take us to a jungle. Like, oh my God, I didn't get that it was a different art form. Mm -hmm. So the play that made me wake up and go, oh, this is powerful all on its own was the musical, A Chorus Line. A Chorus Line. And in 1976, the it had just opened on Broadway in 75, and the British, the, the road tour that was going to London tried out in Toronto. And I remember going to the theater, and I remember in the program it said, you know, it's about a musical audition, as everybody knows. And it said in the program, the place here, the time now, the scene, an audition. And there was no curtain. There was nothing on stage. There was a piece of tape. And I thought, what? Mm. what is this? And then the play began. I went, oh, it's what you're seeing is exactly what the play is. I didn't have to suspend my disbelief, except mm -hmm. it's a musical. And this and the power. And, that, and I went, oh, theater can do something that movies can't do. And by the way, the movie version of a chorus line is not as good as <laughs> it, it is not as good as the stage version, but that was um, as maybe as cheesy as it sounds. I mean, that, that is something that woke me up to go. I get it. I get uh, it. Yeah. I, I love that perspective because, you know, we, by the time my generation got around to chorus line, it, it was a different version kind of, 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 yeah. it, it almost felt like a, like a tired version of, of, the high watermark that it was. And I really love that perspective because you were there, you experienced that and it is still, it can still give you that aliveness, that, that sense of just here you are in this moment. And, it, and no, it does. I mean, it, it's true that, and I agree with you to becoming there's something tired. I saw the revival. Um, yeah. uh, when was that done? 2012 or something? I forget. Um, and it, it, there's something about it that, I don't know. The urgency doesn't seem to be there. Mm. Um, and yet yeah, it still gets revived all the time. It's sure, such a wonderful sure. show. But uh, I'll never forget the ad for it in the paper in 1976. And it said, hot tickets for sale. And then it said, if you, whether you are a Broadway aficionado or you've never seen live theater, mm. there has never been anything quite like a chorus line. Yeah. At the time, at the time, it was yeah. true. Right, right. And it's, it's just nice to have that reminder for us, you know, uh, again, I, you know, the, the whippersnappers and I'm, I'm kind of right in the middle, you know, I'm not, I'm not even a kid anymore, but I do remember that, yeah. that feeling of like, oh, there's a show that just completely blew me away, but don't you kids get it? You know, it was this amazing thing. Um, but there's I'm, a wonderful documentary about Chorus Line. It's called Every Little Step, which mm -hmm. was, which was, oh, it was about the revival because so, you know, a Chorus Line is about a musical audition. So someone smartly made a documentary about the creation of the revival of this the auditions for this musical the revival <laughs> of the musical it's about an audition and it works and i, and I would uh -huh. just show the i would show it in class and the kids would get it oh that's beautifully meta i need to i need to find that immediately 
Yeah. I'm just making every, every, every little step, every little step documentary. Okay. Wonderful. Um, now I just a a couple more and then I think we'll be, we'll be good to go. Um, in, in Canada, what is, what is the, the theater culture like there? You know, if you could give us a, a bit of a picture there. Well, Toronto, well, I'll start off with, I'd say that Toronto is very, very, very active. I think, I mean, probably still true that I think somebody said it's the third largest uh, live theater going city in the world after New York and London. I think mm-hmm. that will be true. Um, not during COVID, but it will be again. <laughs> um, but I, but because of, of, you know, now like with the, the, the connections through, through uh, media and everything, I mean, if you're a working actor in Canada, then you probably have connections to the West Coast. Vancouver is very, very, it's not just filming TV out there. I mean, it's all very connected. Um, and I must say, I mean, if I'm honest, I have to say that I'm, I'm coming back into that world. Mm-hmm. I feel in some ways very, I, I'm connected to a core group, mm-hmm. um, but it is, it is not hard to, probably even where you are, Jamie, it's theater ends up being a small world. Um, it, it really you know, does. Not, yeah, it, it's not hard to you. You can know somebody. It's degrees of separation. You, know, you can you can know someone who knows someone, and it is not hard to. Um, oh well, you know maybe that person can help us out with this, or, or really maybe we, can we go there? Um, um, so it's a. I think it's a very connected community, and there's there's a lot of activity. That's for sure. What do you think? theater has done for you and your quality of life and what is the benefit of theater in our communities in particular um smaller communities or or communities that need a lift up wow two big questions yeah what does it mean to me um well as you've mentioned earlier on i mean if you've got that spark within you it it probably isn't going to leave. And if you don't address it, it's probably going to fester in some way. Um, and for me, so like I knew, like when I retired from teaching last year, everybody said, really, are you sure? Like you're, you're not even 65, like, are you sure? And I said, oh, I'm sure. Because there are things I want to do. And that was that I was thinking about the theater. Um, and what it, so what it gives me is, I mean, I just, I still get so much thrill out of, um, and whether it's live or not, I mean, I just love, um, like I'm reading right now, I've got that, uh, you probably heard of this book, uh, it's called putting it together, how Stephen Sondheim and I wrote, wrote Sunday in the Lord. Like I, you know, I sort of reading that every day. I mean, it's just, there's always, I just love it. I mean, around my place, I've got theater posters around. I mean, I just, there's, I don't know, what, I don't know if I can put into words what that gives me, but it's, um, it's, a, I think theater, yes, movies as well, of course, and literature. But theater gives a particular window on the world that I think is really unique. And, um, and I, I really identify with it um, and like to share it. Um, what was your second question? Um, oh, oh, yeah. For, for the what does it do for people and now, especially in smaller communities. Um, yeah, I think it's there's this communal aspect. Um, I'm a... Uh, um, I'm actually in a like a an online uh, writing workshop right now to make to make myself myself get that first draft done of the uh, the Ann Tyler adaptation. Uh, the Lisa Lafferty runs a an online um, writing workshop. Um, I can give you the information afterwards. And she said she says writing is 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 solitary, 
but she says the workshop will give you A, deadlines, and B, community. And that's, it's so true, you know? Um, in terms of smaller communities, I think there can be, I've heard of so many wonderful initiatives. There are many communities I know in Canada and all over where sometimes they will connect with, with playwrights to do like a, a kind of a site specific piece to the environment. And there can be, it can give people a window on their community like nothing else can. Mm. If you get the right people involved and the right initiative going, um, it, it is, and, and that is different from making a film or um, say writing a, an essay or, or a piece about it. Um, the involvement of people in a theater project can be, uh, there's nothing quite like it. Lovely. I, I absolutely love that. And a good way to end the interview. I know that we could, we could talk for a long time specifically about, I want to talk to you about that spark. I want to talk to you about your adaptation and so much about performance, but you know, I do want to invite you back anytime, you know, when you're done with your uh, project. You always do a part you know, too. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I, I feel like I, I need to say thank you for not just for your teaching, but for your, your work that you're doing, your monologue, your writing, um, very specific and, and very beautiful. I really, really enjoyed it, but, uh, yeah, I'm really looking forward to talk to you again. Uh, Norm, it's been a real pleasure and yeah, I'm probably going to bug you here in a little bit, but let me uh, wrap up the, <laughs> the episode. Is there anything else that you'd like to add or anything that you'd like to, uh, to share with us at this time? Uh, the only other piece, and I'll give you those, these links afterwards, Jamie. Um, so the, the Playwrights Guild of Canada has a a uh, really great uh, initiative right now is called Craft Bites. And what they do is, is they get two playwrights um, and we go online and we get to each share excerpts from our work. Um, and the uh, and it is not for critique. It is not for that. It's just to share. And, but it's open to the public. So the public can sort of sign up and it goes on for one hour. Um, one playwright goes, then the other goes. We each give our reactions or just even, or, or we'll just talk about craft. Uh, we will talk after playwriting and um, it's a wonderful initiative and I'm going to be doing an excerpt from this one man piece that's sort of based around the the connections with Edward Albee uh, and I'm doing that on February the 18th at 1pm online and um, I will send you the link and uh, your listeners can uh, tune in tune in if they wish. Wonderful. I appreciate that. I'll make sure to get the word out too on my end but Thanks again, Norm. I really appreciate it. Stick, stick around for just a little bit, but I'm going to fade sure. this thing out, okay? Thank you so much, James. I appreciate it. Well done. Well done.